Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Amen. Amen. Y'all excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. Amen. Did y'all have a good Thanksgiving? Everybody had something, everybody had something good to eat? Y'all look well fed this morning. Leftovers on deck ministry. And for all of you people who already got Christmas decorations up, I am secretly judging you right now. <laughs> That is an abomination. Amen. Thanksgiving is not over till the leftovers are gone. Somebody say amen. No, no amen. I'm excited to, to be with you this morning and uh, share God's word. Just a couple of things before we jump in. Um, for those of you that didn't hear the amazing, incredible, incredible news that... Uh, uh, late, late Friday night or early Saturday morning, uh, the Masons got the call uh, that Sister Yvette could come in uh, to have the surgery for her liver transplant. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so they go in um, and, and the, the regular uh, surgery takes about 10 to 12 hours. It's a long ordeal. Um, and so we were there last night and the surgeons had finished up in five. And, and when, 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 man, when you talk about the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, they, the doctors came in amazed at how well everything fell into place and how the liver began responding immediately. Incredible, incredible. So we, we thank God for that. We thank God for that. Continue to pray for them and their family. There's still a need for recovery. Uh, pray, for, uh, pray for Pastor E. You know, you, he already has a lot on his plate. Uh, and so the addition of having to just care uh, for his wife in this way during the season. Pray for their children, uh, still young children. And so just continue to, to keep them lifted. Um, uh, while I was with them at the hospital uh, last night, I got another call. Uh, um, Brother Eric Young, who uh, is married to uh, Cicely Young, uh, had a heart attack yesterday afternoon. Um, he's doing okay. I went to the hospital last night. He's doing okay. He had a heart attack yesterday afternoon. Um, by the grace of God, the ambulance was there. They were about to leave, and he had another one. They rushed him to the hospital. Uh, and put a stint in, took him upstairs to his room and he had another one and they had to take him back down. By the time last night came, he was stabilized, he was in good spirits, doing well. Um, and so just keep him in your prayers, keep him in your prayers. Um, I'm, t I'm telling, man, God is, he is so faithful. God is so faithful. Um, and so, yeah, let's, let's continue to, to keep them lifted. Uh, as well as all of those. Listen, I, the holidays are a joyous time, but, but not a joyous time for everyone. There are many of us who are grieving the loss of family members, of friends during this season of time. So as we even keep lifted those of us among us who are sick and dealing with illnesses, remember those who are grieving still during this period as well. Amen? Amen. Well, let's, let's stand. If you would stand with me, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, can you turn me down a little bit? Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we're going to read uh, for verse 1 all the way down through 15. Y'all know how I like to do, y'all, I have odds, y'all got evens. What, I, what do I have? Odds. What do y'all have? Y'all know what evens are, right? <laughs> I'm just asking, somebody always messes it up, amen. <laughs> I have odds, you guys have evens. We're going to read the last verse together, amen? Yeah. 
All right, this is the word of the Lord. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good. To be self-controlled, y'all almost got me, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In everything, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn. <laughs> See, I'm getting on y'all and I'm jacking this all up. <laughs> for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All together, proclaim these things, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. If I could title our text for this morning, it would simply be Waiting with Purpose. Waiting with Purpose. Father, we are coming before you as needy children this morning. We are needy, but we are thankful. Thankful that you supply each and every one of our needs. Thankful that you are faithful where we are faithless. Thankful that you are patient with us that you care for us, that you are kind, that you provide. Uh, we could name all of the different adjectives to describe how good you are, and it still would not be enough to proclaim your excellencies. We thank you for Yvette Mason. We thank you for sustaining her. We thank you even more for the exemplary character that she has displayed as she suffered. The conduct of one who has fought to stay before the throne of God, who has not complained in her suffering. What an exemplary model. God, we thank you for uh, sustaining Eric Young yesterday, for keeping him in the land of the living. God, we thank you. Would you continue to bring healing to both of them? Would you prepare our hearts this day to receive your word, to receive it with gladness, with gladness because we know that it comes from you and that you are a good God who gives us good gifts. What greater gift could you give us than Jesus who is the Christ? And so Father, we say thank, thank you to you for all that you have done. And we pray that we would be a people, God, set aside for your own possession, who walk worthy of the call to which we've been called. Father, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 You may be seated. Waiting with uh, purpose. So I have four kids. I love all of them. Three girls, boy, you know, they're getting up there in age. Um, I grew up in a, in a, in a family of five. Uh, or f five kids, you know, so I'm used to kind of the, the big family child children dynamic. Um, and one of the things that you got to get accustomed to when you grow up in a big family is not having your own stuff. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't have money to buy everything they own individual, everybody they own individual thing, right? Just because this person get a toy don't mean everybody getting a toy. If it's your birthday, we're going to celebrate your birthday. You just got to wait till your birthday. 
If you don't got kids, you're missing that. Because siblings get mad when it's not their birthday and they see somebody else getting gifts. Right? It's, it's craziness. I don't even know what's happening. My wife has come up with this, you know, with this very clear definition for my children uh, when they get impatient and they don't want to wait their turn. Right? And so whenever they start bickering or complaining, she simply says to them, are you being patient right now? And they say, yes. <laughs> and you know, she, she corrects them and she says, patience is waiting with a good attitude. Very simple, very clear, and yet it gets to the heart of what patience is. Patience is waiting with a good attitude. Which means in order for you to be patient, there are certain characteristics that you should be displaying right now. I can tell when you're not being patient, right? This is why I tell my kids. Don't tell me you're being patient. I can tell when you're not being patient, right? Look, look, look. I, I wrote some things down. This is how I know you're waiting with a good attitude. You're waiting with a good attitude when you don't keep asking me. You're waiting with a good attitude when you don't try to do it yourself after I told you to wait. I feel like I'm in somebody's driveway right now. You're, you're waiting with a good attitude when you don't huff and puff and blow your house down. But, but, but here, here's the one that I think might trigger you a little bit. It's that you're, you're waiting with a good attitude when you don't bring to my attention how patient you're being. There are certain characteristics that make clear whether or not you're actually waiting with a good attitude. Now, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with God's word, but, but Jesus Christ came and, and appeared in the flesh. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and then he dipped. But he promised to come back one day. And so that means for every believer, there is a waiting period between Christ's coming and Christ returning and there are certain qualifications and characteristics that every believer must have to determine whether or not you're waiting well. And so the question that, that Paul is trying to answer here in this text is what does your life look like between the time that Christ saved you and the time that he returns? What does your waiting look like? Simply put, how we wait matters. How you wait on Christ's return, what your life looks like before his return matters. What people say about what your life looks like matters. The perception of what people think about you while you wait, regardless of if it's true or not, if there's a perception there, it matters. How we wait matters. Paul has already, earlier in this, in this book of Titus, established that there was a need to provide elders in this town of Crete, this city of Crete, uh, because everybody was kind of running wild and following false teachers. And so Paul says, Titus, I need you to establish some things. I need you to appoint some elders in this city so that there can be a model of exemplary living and teaching uh, to stabilize the church in Crete so that they can fully maximize all that God wants them to be as his set aside people. And so he says, this is what uh, godly men who have put in positions of eldership leading God's people are supposed to look like. Verses 1 through 9. Then in verse 10, he says, there's a lot of foolishness going around with people who are deceivers and rebellious towards the gospel, who are making chaos in households and are really just about the money. And so they're teaching things to stir up people's emotions just so they can get money from them. They're teaching things that make people okay with living a life of sin because as long as they're saved, their conduct doesn't matter. I've been saved, I'm going to heaven, that's all that matters. Paul here is trying to 
get Titus to differentiate. No, there needs to be some distinction between you and between them. That's why he begins in, in verse one, he says, but you, making it very clear that there's something going on with them, but I want you to make a distinction between yourself and them and say, but you, I don't care what they're doing, Titus, but you, I don't care how comfortable they are in their sin, but you, I don't care how often they try to lie on God's word, but you, but you, but you. There's a distinction. And he says, Titus, I want you to take it seriously. The, the line must be drawn in the sand so deep and so straight that nobody has any question which side you're on. You should not be able to stand, stand too close to the line where people don't even know whether or not you've crossed it yet. Titus, but you. He says, but you are to proclaim things with sound teaching. This brings me to my, my first and only point this morning. How you wait reveals how seriously you take the reputation of God's word and his people. How you wait reveals how seriously you take the reputation of God's word and his people. He said, but you, Titus, are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. I, I love what Paul does next because Paul gets very practical, right? Now, now we can go to some of Paul's books. Like if you read through uh, the book of Romans, uh, Paul gets very doctrinally theological and he goes very deep and he begins uh, breaking out some terminology that oftentimes can be difficult to understand. But here Paul gets very practical. And he said, just so we're on the same page, I want to let you know what this conduct, what the expected behavior of the Christian life is supposed to look like. And best believe it is rooted in doctrine. I'm not just giving you behaviors that you're supposed to follow. I'm giving you behaviors that come straight from God's word that have theological principles wrapped up in them. But he says, just just so we're clear, I'm going to give you some practical instructions of what the Christian life is supposed to look like what the household of faith is supposed to look like, what we are supposed to re represent and, and be about. So he starts off, he says, he says, you know what? He says, older men are to be self-controlled. Older men are supposed to be worthy of respect. Older men are supposed to be sensible. Older men are supposed to be sound or healthy or stable in their faith and in their love and in their endurance. He gives a lot of qualifications of what an older man is supposed to look like. There, there's an expectation here that Paul gives where he says the life of an older man should be one that can be modeled after. Yes, yes. It's, it's, when you get to that older season of life, you should have some stability in your life by now. There should be some things that you don't have to worry about in the life of an older man. See, if, if, if we're being honest, the reason why a lot of younger men are still messing around and, and, and fouling up is because the older men are still dealing with the same things the younger men are dealing with. Are we going to keep it real? Can I, can I keep it 100 with y'all? Listen, listen he, he says, he says, but the older men, there is something about having lived long enough with life experience, having walked enough with Jesus Christ, that you should have learned some lessons by now. I should not have to worry about an older man's self-control, whether or not he has his passions on a leash or not. I should not have to worry about an older man being impulsive, being easily swayed by his emotions. I should not have to worry about an older man having outbursts of anger because he has learned through trials and through tests that he has to apply God's word to every single area of his life. That's why, that's why I like what he says. he says. He says an older man should be worthy of respect. That means that an older man's life doesn't necessitate that he has respect just because he's older. Now, 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 don't get it twisted because the Bible does teach that we have to honor the older generations, right? There's a place for that. But on the other end, it says that the life of an older man should be lived in such a way that he deserves to be honored. 
that when people look at his life, there's something about him that says, man, he deserves to my respect. He does, like, I can't just talk any old way in front of him. I can't just act any old way in front of him. I can trust what he tells me when he gives me advice. I can look at his marriage and know that he loves his wife well. I can tell that he's a good employee on the job. Man, he just oozes the credibility of having spent time in his word morning after morning after morning. He just drips with righteousness. Is that you, older man? Because there are certain things in the life of an older man that, that I shouldn't have to worry about. And yet, Paul here is telling Titus, all the older men ain't like that. And so I have to lay out for you what an older man's life is supposed to look like because it's a bunch of foolishness going on. He said, how, how, can, how can men lead if they're still dealing with the same things in their older years that they were dealing with in their youth. That means you have a track record of inconsistency. That means that you have credibility issues. It says older man, older man. I like what one commentary says. It says that this man is wise in his decision making and careful when making judgments. He is decisive but not impulsive he is discerning but not paralyzed he is clear on what really matters and decisive in making godly choices he rightly uses his god-given talents and gifts his time his money his energy he is a man with right and godly priorities and he has a motto as a motto for his life one simple dictum all that matters in life is pleasing God. All that matters in life is pleasing God. And sometimes that means you're going to have to disappoint some people. Sometimes pleasing God might cause an argument with your spouse. Sometimes pleasing God means you might have to take three steps back at your job to take two steps forward in righteousness. I don't know who I'm talking to in here today. All that matters is pleasing God. Then he says, he says, in the same way, just like the older men, in the same way, I'm comparing the two as if they're the same. So all of these characteristics are mutually uh, inclusive. What I'm saying to the older men applies to what I'm going to say to the older women. And what I've said to the older women applies to the older men in the same way. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. Mm. They are to be reverent in behavior. Let me say it one more time for the Holy Ghost. They are to be reverent in behavior. Then, then, then he says, he says, not slanderers. Now, now, you didn't hear the thrust of that word because I didn't tell you what it, what it, what it, what it means in the Greek. The word for slanderers in the Greek is diablos. Just in case you don't know what Greek means, what that means in the Greek, it means Satan. He says that when you slander, you are taking on a characteristic of the evil one. You know why? Because God calls him the father of lies. Slandering is when you make assumptions of someone's character or intentions and share it with others. When you tell things to somebody that can do nothing to actually change the issue that you have with someone else. This word is used 34 times of Satan in the New Testament. He says, he says, reverent behavior. He said, you can't be slanderers spreading false information to make yourself look better. Acting like you want to pray for somebody just so you can really gossip. You know, sister so-and-so, she's really struggling with this. You know, I, 
I, I really gotta tell you this because I'm struggling with my sister and I, I really don't know what to do. This is what happened. And you paint yourself in a good light so that you can have other people join your side so when you go approach them, it makes it seem like the whole world is against that person because they agree with you because you're the only person that they actually talk to. He says they're not slanderers. He says they're, they're not slaves to excessive drinking. Doesn't mean that they don't, doesn't say that they don't drink. It says that they're not slaves to excessive drinking where drinking becomes a way of an escape for you. And sometimes this isn't even sloppy drunkenness. Because sometimes we're thinking of this as the college days where we're in the dorm rooms and everybody's blacked out and, and stumbling down the hallway. No, this isn't what that means. This means that when you go home after a long day and you feel like you have to have a drink in order to make yourself feel better, you've become a slave to, self, to excessive drinking. He says they are to teach what is good. And then he says, so that. Transitional clause, prepositional clause. He says, he says, so that. That means that the reverent behavior of older men and women has purpose. Listen to me. It has purpose that's not just for them. That, 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 that means that, that your reverent conduct as a believer doesn't just have to do with your own personal relationship with Jesus. He, 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 says, he says, teach them to have reverent behavior. Teach the older men to be self-controlled. He says, so that. That, that, that means that, that your behavior is helping somebody else. Your, your, your behavior even though you are personally responsible for it, your behavior impacts something else. It says, it says you're not just ex exemplifying godly conduct for you. It says we, we got to get out of this mentality where it's just our own personal Christianity. Where it's, it's, just, it's just us and God. And, and we're only concerned about whether or not we've personally sinned and not how our conduct has influenced someone else. He says, he says, so that, walk with me, so that they may encourage, I like that word, encourage, because it can also mean train, so that they can encourage or train the young women. He says, so, so older women, there are particular characteristics that need to exemplify what it looks like as you wait on the return of the Lord, so that you can actually teach the younger women. You can't teach what you're not doing. Even though sometimes we try to. If we're being honest. See, see, a lot of us are trying to teach and we're telling people to do the very things we're not willing to sacrifice at the altar of God. We're encouraging people to die things that we have never laid down and nailed to the cross. So you can't, you can't teach what you ain't practicing. How are you going to love your husband or teach this young lady how to love, love her husband and you always talking bad about him behind his back? How are you going to act like you actually agree with submission when you don't ever let your husband lead? Oh, I'm by myself in here today. I'll <laughs> He says, you can't, you can't give your life away. You can't disciple. Nobody can learn from you because if you try to, I guarantee you, he will expose you. He will expose your hypocrisy as you try to hide and exalt yourself as if you're a teacher and you're not practicing what you preach. He says, so man, he said, your life, your life, so that 
You may encourage, you may train the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. This is one of the few places where, uh, where women are encouraged to love their husbands. Usually uh, when, the, when, when the referendum to love your spouse is given, it's given from the men's perspective to the wife. Right, but here Paul tells Titus that, that the older women have to teach, have to train the younger women, have to remind the younger women how to love their husbands and, and, and children, which 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 lets me know that that you don't really know how to love. You have to be taught how to love. You 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 don't really love. That's why. When you really get into intimate relationships with people, it exposes how selfish we are. Because we've grown so accustomed to our own perversion of love that when we get close to people, we really get seen for who we are. So Paul says, listen, older women, I need you to be in, in such a place of spiritual maturity where you are actually practicing what it looks like to love because you've learned by trial and error, because you've had to repent. Older men, I, you, you need to learn what it looks like to love because you have failed, but you've repented so that you can train the younger oh, yeah. who are coming behind you. Absolutely. Right now, why does Paul have to remind them to teach the younger women to love their wives and their children? You would think that that's a given, but the truth is that as a wife, as a mother, life is hard. Like it, it like like I I I I've never been a wife or a mother, <laughs> but but I can tell you that I understand why Paul tells Titus this, is because their expectations are going to constantly be unmet by their husbands. All of their work and service is going to go unvalued by their children. So what makes it difficult to love your husband? and love your children is when all you do is give out, give out, give out, and you go underappreciated. When you serve and serve and serve and nobody really gets it. When, when your husband comes home from work and he doesn't ask you how your day has been, he doesn't offer to take the kids, he doesn't go clean up the dishes or wash some laundry, he goes right to his favorite chair and grabs his favorite remote and turns on his favorite show and then expects you to serve him more. Children who are always taking and complaining. And listen to me, moms and wives, you need to be encouraged that God sees you. But don't clap just yet. <laughs> because everything that I said doesn't negate your responsibility you to remain present in love. Where are you going to learn that from? Unless there's an older woman who has wrestled through it and cried at night through it with God, and woke up in the morning frustrated, but has continued to be present in love. So that's where you learn that from. That's where you learn that from. He says, I, I love what he says, he says, he even tells the young women to be self-controlled. He tells the older men to be self-controlled. He tells the young women to be self-controlled. It's something about a lack of control going on like he's, he's talking to Christians here. And he has to remind almost every population within the Christian church to be self-controlled. But he says, he says, teach the young woman so you can teach them what it looks like to be self-controlled. Um, and then, then, then he says, so that God's word won't be slandered. Ah. Mm. When we read God's word, and we choose to live any old type of way. We essentially tell the rest of the world that God's word is not true. We essentially say to the world that God's word has no power. Because if God's word can't transform us, 
then it lacks the usefulness that Paul says it has in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For the, this, the, this word is God-breathed and profitable for everything. See, we, when, we don't, when we read God's word and we refuse to be transformed by it, or we, be, we, 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 we just live any old type of way, we are saying that God's word ain't true and it don't got no power. We've slandered it. We've communicated an untrue accusation against God's word when we refuse to live in an exemplary Christian conduct. He says, he says, not only do you have a responsibility for your Christian life, for your personal relationship with God, you also have a responsibility to those who are coming after you, who are watching your life, but you also have a responsibility for how those who are not a part of the community of faith view God's word. Do you know why I say that? Because a lot of times in the church, we talk about the world as if they don't have some credible accusations that actually stick. We just say, oh man, because they're not saved, they don't know what they're talking about, and we say they lack credibility. The truth of the matter is that there are many accusations that they can throw against the wall for the church that sticks. And, and here's the kicker. Here's what makes it so terrible. is because 99% of the time, it has absolutely nothing to do with doctrine. It has to do with what they see and experience from Christians in their conduct. He says, man, he says, your conduct, your conduct matters because how people view God's word is going to be identified based on what they experience from you. They never open a Bible up. They've already determined in their mind whether or not this God is true based on the, how they see you live. Is that on our minds? Are we regularly thinking about that? He says in the same way, encourage the young men. Again, here goes that word again. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And then he just says, in everything. He doesn't just say self-controlled in general. He wants to specify and say, listen, no matter what the young man is doing, because the young men typically live so ratchet, <laughs> tell them to be self-controlled in every single thing that they do. You got to make a decision about something, you use the self-control. You going to spend money, you use the self-control. You like that girl over there, you use the self-control. Because young men are so impulsive in their decision-making that they lack self-control. Young men don't have the tendency of thinking through consequences. And so they just act without self-control. And so Paul is saying, he's saying, I heard you, Brother Ranch. I, I, Paul is saying... <laughs> Paul is saying, for young men, you gotta, you, men, young men, they need to have self-control on their minds all the time because they're never self-controlled. Because they've never actually learned the discipline of not engaging in their flesh. That's why so many of the young men are struggling with the same thing and never experience any type of victory over their sin. I'll tell you where it comes from. It's a self-control. It's almost as if Paul is saying, listen, if you can get self-control down, you done halfway won the battle. If there was, if there was one characteristic that I could tell young men to focus on that would draw their hearts closer to God, that would encourage them to make better decisions, that would allow them to actually love their neighbors well, is self-control. It's one thing you can focus on, self-control. 
I like what he says next, though. He says, he says but Titus, he says, you got to make yourself an example before the young man. Now, Titus isn't an older man, but Titus is a younger man who's in a position of leadership, pastoral leadership. And so Paul knows that Titus has the ability to relate to the younger man because of where he is in his sphere of life. And yet he has to act in disposition and in character like an older man. And so he says, now, Titus, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity. I like that word dignity. It means incorruptible, unable to be destroyed. I love how he uses the word integrity here because the idea is, uh, Titus, that I want you to have the type of character that you do the same thing when nobody's watching. Meaning that, and I'm not talking about when nobody's watching in the moment, but you know they'll find out later. And then you got to try to find a way to lie about it. I'm talking about the type of no one watching where no one would ever know. Where it would never come out. Where you would never be exposed. Are you living the same way? Nobody would ever see. Nobody could ever call you out on it. If you know you could hide it or just cover over it real fast, would you still live the same way? If nobody could take snapshots, would you still live the same way? This is what he's encouraging with Titus. He says, he says you have to have the type of above reproachness that there's nothing that anybody can say about you that's credible that will stick. He says, I want you to be so seriously concerned about the reputation that God's word has because of how you live, that you're concerned even about the perception that people have about you. He says, do you live like that? He says, this is the type of life that I want you to live in good works, but also in your teaching. Your message is to be so sound above reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything to say about who? About who? About who? Now listen, Paul is talking directly to Titus about his personal conduct and behavior and the message that he's to preach. But he says that is important so that nobody has anything bad to say about us. So not only does your Christian conduct influence how people view God's word, but he says your Christian conduct even influences how they view the rest of us Christians. He said, oh, but y'all don't think about that. And I know y'all don't think about that. Because when y'all, when y'all out here having sex, jumping from guy to guy and girl to girl, you're not thinking about how that reflects upon me. You're not reflecting on how that thinks of, or, or, or how that reflects upon JC or Alicia or Tiffany. You're not thinking, of, you're thinking about how you can indulge your flesh in the moment. And sometimes you don't even feel bad if they don't think bad about, if they think bad about you. But what about the rest of us? You know why it's hard to share the gospel sometimes? Not because of something I did. But y'all Christians. I don't go into the church because y'all Christians, some hypocrites, and they ain't met nobody in that church, but they had a poor experience with their auntie. Said so Titus, he said, your, your above reproachness has so much more to do with you. It has something to do with, with us. But we don't think like that. We don't think about the us-ness of the church. We think about the I-ness of the church. He says, Christian, like our, how we wait matters. It matters. 
and it's bigger than you. When sin is crouching at your door, you can't just think about whether or not you want to indulge. You have to think about how is this going to affect so-and-so? I have to give an account to my brothers and sisters. So what I do matters. What happens if they see Pastor Kurt indulging? Maybe we can indulge. Maybe it's not that bad. What if Pastor Kurt is struggling with the same sin that you're struggling with? Well, man, Pastor Kurt's struggling too, so maybe I don't have to fight as hard. And listen, I'm not saying this to say that I'm sinless, because I, <laughs> I ain't. I done sinned against some of y'all in here. But what I'm saying is that when, when, I, when I think through the responsibility that I have in terms of my life and my conduct, I know that it's bigger than me. I'm thinking about those who don't know Jesus and how my life will either make him more attractive or drive them away. I'm thinking about my brothers and sisters and how I will either encourage their faith and drive them to holiness or give them more room to relax. It's bigger than us. He says, so that they won't have anything bad to say about us. Then he says, slaves are to submit to their masters and everything. I don't know who's in the room, so I'll just say this is not... Uh, uh, this is not the American slavery that we are accustomed to, the, the, the transatlantic slave trade. This is not that. This is a different social construct that was still wrong and sinful. But here Paul is saying basically, like slaves, when you're under the authority of your master, you should live in such a way that makes the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive. He doesn't say it in this passage, but he tells slave owners, he says that, that you're supposed to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ with kindness as a brother because they, they have the same master that you do. So he says that there is a disposition from both the slave and the slave master that shows an honoring and a love towards one another that makes the Christian faith attractive. Regardless of positionally where you find yourself in society. Then he gets down, verse 11, he says, he says, now everything that I just told you about your conduct is rooted in something. Everything about the above reproachness that I'm preaching to you is rooted in what comes next. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Instructing us to deny godlessness, worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Here Paul is saying that, see, the, the reason that your Christian conduct matters is because Jesus Christ came. And he brought with him the grace of God. And the grace of God that he brought with him gave us, did two things for us. Not only did he bring the grace that saves us, but he also brought the grace that instructs us how to live. Now, now the beautiful thing about this is that the, the grace that appeared, that appeared to instruct us, did not wait until we got it right to come. Because if we had gotten it right before he came, there would be no need to instruct us and there would be no need for saving. And so this grace that appeared came on your behalf while you were still an enemy of God. Whew, that's good news. He says, so the grace of God appears bringing salvation to those who are in need of it. 
And then once that grace saves us, it instructs us on how to deny and how to live. Because the grace knows that there are some things that we can no longer live in. That's why Paul tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 4 that we got to take off the old man. He says, he says, you can't keep operating in the way that you used to know Christ that's, or the way you used to live because that's not how you learned Christ. There are some things that you have to take off and there are other things that you need to replace them with. Notice you can't just take things off and then not replace them with anything. That's why he says, deny yourself and then live in this way. Because if you just take stuff off and don't replace it with nothing, you're going to go right back to that same thing. So he says, take off worldly lust, take off unrighteousness and live, replace it with sensibility. Replace it with godliness, replace it with righteousness so that you can live in an honorable way in this present age. Verse 13, he says, while we wait. That means that God has not put an expiration date on your waiting. So he doesn't couch your waiting in whether or not your circumstances are too hard. Whether or not you've been constantly disappointed. He says, he says, while you wait, you have a responsibility to live in a godly way. He says, your waiting matters. Your waiting matters because Christ came so that you could wait differently until he comes back. If he didn't save you, then he wouldn't call you to wait differently. But since he saved you, you have a responsibility. The least you could do. You think living godly is hard? Living godly is the least you could do in light of what he gave up to save you. refuse to complain to God about the difficulties and making excuses and justifications for why I won't follow him. It's the least I can do. This this present world, the suffering of this present world is nothing, nothing, nothing compared to the glory that's coming. Living for you, oh God, is the least I could do. If, if that's all you're going to require of me, that's it? That's it, God? That's all I got to do to be with you for eternity is be obedient? It's the least I could do. Then he gives us a reminder in verse 14. He says, just, just in case you're struggling with waiting well, He gave himself. I, I, I wish I had a shout in church right now. He, he, he gave himself. If you're struggling to wait well, if you're struggling giving yourself in obedience to him, just remember that he gave himself. He, himself was the best he could give and he decided not to give you anything else. And he says, if the best that I can give is myself, and that's the only thing that will get the job done, then I'm going to give the best that I can, which is me. Listen, listen, it wasn't easy for God to give himself. To give himself, he had to decide in his mind that he was going to reject the riches and the perfection of glorious, eternal community with God. And he said, I'm going to come down and step down into your world. And I'm going to put on flesh. And I'm going to live like you. He said, in order to give himself, I got to submit myself to the same air that you breathe. If I'm going to give myself, I've got to submit myself to the same types of food that you eat. If I want to give myself I've got to not only do that but I've got to die on a cross now I got to die on the cross that I made with my words the wood that I stitched together at the beginning of all time I'm going to
gonna let myself be laid down on. If I'm gonna give myself, I'm gonna let them use them rusty nails that I created with my mouth and I'm gonna let them nail me to a cross. If I'm gonna give myself, I'm gonna let them pierce me in the side and I'm gonna take my final breath and go to the Father. If I'm gonna give myself, I'm gonna raise on the third day with all glory and all power in my, in my hand. If you thought that God giving himself didn't cost him nothing, he gave himself. And all he asks you to give is obedience. And he says, Titus, he bookends it. He bookends this, this section with the same things he started with. Verse 1, he said, but you are to proclaim these things. Verse 15, he bookends it. And he says, he has to remind him. He says, Titus, proclaim these things. And why does he have to remind him to proclaim these things? Because he knows that this is not popular talk. He has to remind Titus, Titus, not everybody going to agree with what you say. Titus, when you have to set the expectations, when you got to speak hard truths into the lives of people, they always, they're not just going willy-nilly just follow you. So people are going to fight against their, their desire to not walk in holiness. People are going to fight to hold on to the things of the world that they really enjoy. He says, but you got to proclaim these things. You got to proclaim it and you got you to encourage and rebuke with all authority. And he, no matter what they say about you, they can't disqualify you. Because their issue is not with you. Their issue is with me. He said, so Titus, no matter what you tell them, make sure you tell them that until I return, tell them to wait well. Father, we come before you, God, as a people who are desiring to wait well. We would be lying, God, if we said that life doesn't make it hard to wait for you to come back. When sickness ravages our body, when friends and family turn their back on us, when we struggle wrestling against our own flesh, the constant attacks of the enemy It's hard to wait well. And yet we know, we know that we have the power to wait well because you gave yourself. And you didn't give yourself and then leave. You gave yourself and then you said, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send a helper. And he's not lesser than me. I'm going to send you a helper and he's God. And he's not just going to come upon you for certain situations, but he's going to dwell in you forever and always. So when you feel weak, you have God with you. When you feel disappointed, you have God with you. When you feel lonely, you have God with you. So it doesn't matter how weak you feel. It doesn't matter how bad the situation is. He says, he says my, my name is, is the blessed one who's always with you, even till the end of the age. And so, Father, as we await your return, as we wait for you to come back and make all things new, help us to be mindful of how we wait so that no one can say anything bad about you, so that no one can say anything bad about your word, so no one can say anything bad about our brothers and sisters. Help us to wait well. If that's all you're asking from us, God, if that's all you're asking, 
then we can do it. By your strength. For your glory. For the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.